Hello and welcome to Ascend Higher, the podcast of True Freedom Trust. My name is Stuart Parker and I'm the director of this UK-based charity. We hold to the historic Christian understanding of what the Bible teaches about sex and relationships. We offer teaching, pastoral support groups and conferences. This podcast is connected to our quarterly Ascend magazine, which includes a range of articles, reviews and personal stories, all dealing with what it's like to be a Christian attracted to others of the same sex. For the spring edition of Ascend Hire, I chatted with Jonathan, one of our members, who is also an ordinand in the Church of England. We talked about how dispiriting it can be when some leaders seem to be constantly chipping away at the church's long-held understanding of biblical sexuality. And we took inspiration from Hezekiah's example in the book of Isaiah that encourages us to hold our nerve and not be discouraged. Let's listen in. Good morning then, Jonathan. Really nice to have you on the podcast with us today. And um, yeah, nice to have you here. So we've been doing this edition of Ascend on good mental health and building resilience. The Bible says lots about just standing firm. And I've just been reflecting recently, you know, as a ministry, we try to help people who are struggling with their sexuality and so forth. But I think a lot of what we do is we just try to help people to keep going and in the faith and that's not that's not always easy and i know that you're part of the church of england and that's been Mm -hmm. that's had its challenges recently and so that's a little bit as you wrote the article uh, called the inevitability of god's victory that was a little bit about what you were reflecting on was a sort of recent experience of something that was quite quite hard so we'll get into that in a minute but i just noticed in your sort of at the end of the article you say uh, you happily split your time at college between systematic theology and your Nintendo 64. Mm. Your wife calls you an 80-year-old, eight-year-old. I was just wondering about the Nintendo 64. Does that help you to get away from it all? Uh, it does, actually, yeah. Um, I it was So I, I, I bought my Nintendo 64. I didn't buy it, actually. I got given it as a birthday present on, I think it was my eighth birthday. Um, so many years ago now, and it still works. And I never really graduated from it. I was never a big gamer. It's always been my favorite console. And I've, I've basically, I've got, you know, I've got good mileage out of it. Um, my wife basically encourages me to play video games as soon as I'm home from my office, because as you well pointed out to me, I don't have a commute. I've got like a three minute walk from my office to where I live. And, um, I'm usually when I come home, I'm still full of, you know, whatever I've been studying that day. I've had my head in a, you know, something to do with church history. And actually it's, um, I'm, I'm only really of good use to her, uh, when I can, when I've switched off for half an hour. So I'm in the, um, enviable position of, um, having a wife who actively encourages me to play video games. So there we go. That's unusual, I think. (laughs) (laughs) And what's your favorite game? Do you know what? I, it, there's so many to choose from. I'm going to have to go with GoldenEye. It's just an absolute classic. Um, my When I bought it, I remember kind of growing up uh, when I was like maybe nine or ten, I think I got it. I remember going to bed one night and coming down and noticing that the game uh, had been completed. And I, I was like, I didn't do this. And it turns out my dad had been playing it when I went to bed. Um, so it's it's that good. It's that 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 exciting that even my dad, who is, you know, technology averse, um, just couldn't couldn't stay away from it. So, yeah, I still have, you know, um, friends around. And we play kind of multiplayer games now and stuff. So it's a it's it's a nice little um, 
it's a trip down 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 memory lane as well you know the yeah, music great. you like the rubbish graphics and all that <laughs> <laughs> so vintage gaming and systematic theology we know you're into those two things can you maybe just tell us a little bit more about your your, your sort of current situation yeah so i'm uh, i'm an auditand which means i am training uh at college to be a minister in the Church of England. Um, I live on site with my wife. Um, we are in our first year, um, so two more to go after this. Um, and yep, uh, we've settled in really well. We're having a very good, really, really lovely time. I absolutely, you know, there's it, college can be busy. Um, there's lots of things to kind of learn and take in. Um, so the challenge often is just making sure that what goes into the head uh sinks down into the heart and um yeah we just started semester two now um and i have to say like at the end of semester one i did as busy as it was and you know as tiring as it does get before hand ins there's a bit of space between each semester to kind of sit and reflect on like what what's gone on and you know i just finished the semester kind of knowing god a bit more loving him a bit more and that's that's really what training is about, as well as kind of equipping you, you know, for skills and stuff. It's really just getting to know God better in his words so that you are more just more confident in him, you know, um, more equipped um, that you believe you believe the scriptures uh, even more than you did when you turned up. And you know that they are sufficient and Jesus is sufficient in them. So, um, yeah, that's it's been nice to see God do that work in me. And, you know, there's Lord willing, lots more to do so. Really encouraging. Good to hear that Bible College is building you up in your personal faith as well as equipping you with what you need to to mm. minister to others. That's really good. So in the article, mm. you it kind of particularly was triggered by a difficult day uh, on the fifteenth of November in twenty twenty three. Can you just tell us a little bit about about that and that sort of building sense of inevitability to what happened on that day? Mm, so, yeah, so um, in the Church of England, we have the way the church is governed is that there's uh, synods, which is basically a meeting of elected representatives from um, around the country amongst the laity of the Church of England, the clergy and also the House of Bishops as well. So there's three houses and synod. They meet uh, three times a year. Um, and we and a couple of friends uh, at college, fellow ordinands, uh, one or two not as well, uh, one or two independents who are just curious. Um, we went down to see the kind of closing day debates of the living in love and faith process um, that was going on. And we thought um, it would be a good, good opportunity to kind of to go down and see see the cogs turning, um, so to speak. And it was, you know, there was a. I think I approached the day kind of knowing broadly which way I thought, you know, the voting would would go. But the point of it, I think, was much more. I have to say, the point of going down that day was was actually curiosity. You can sit in church house in the gallery in the public gallery, and you can watch, you know, the discussions. You can watch the process. You can watch how things how things move and how things change. Because, um, you know, so often we're just getting news off off you know the internet or through other people or through friends who were there and i thought this is a this is a great opportunity for me as you know someone who is looking to minister in the church of england to go down and actually you know engage in some small way yeah yeah uh, good for you for actually kind of getting involved and actually watching it because it's easy for us just to sort of tut tut about a, a decision that's made that we disagree with but actually 
you yeah. went and took the time to to see the process and mm. to see the arguments being made either way mm. and obviously they're debating the biblical position on sexuality within the church that's of england right. that's been the whole living in love and faith process yes um but it sounds like you kind of had a sense that it was going to go uh, against the orthodox understanding mm. of biblical sexuality that day but you you still went anyway n- yes. knowing that that was probably the likely outcome Yes. Um, you know, I talk about the kind of there's a sort of I, I think I say a dull inevitability um, is the phrase I use. Um, I think by that, I, I don't want to give the impression that, you know, I don't think Christ is building his church. Do you know what I mean? Whatever, whatever happens. And 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 um, I think I am often too guilty of listening perhaps too much to the noise of the kind of culture war around this issues that we also kind of has kind of, you know, we kind of see in the church church of england at the moment you know but i i think i think i think part of the inevitability i feel is that the the, the process in the church of england moves so slowly um which is both a blessing and a curse sometimes you know it's so slow that if you do want to bring any kind of change abound around it does just take ages which is great however as someone who um you know is same-sex attracted and, and is looking to the leaders of you know, his church to affirm what, you know, I believe is the clear teaching of Christ in scripture, having to live with the constant chip, chip away of, of orthodoxy um, over a prolonged period of time, I think is quite, can be, can be just grinds you down a little bit, you know? Um, And there is a sense of, you know, every decision, the, the, the ball is moved a bit further along. And I think it's an accumulation of that that I was feeling that day. And obviously being in the room kind of exacerbated that. Yeah. And uh, the, I think I think it's worth pointing out as well that uh, actually in, in on the day, the, the House, when, when there's a vote on these matters, uh, the, ho- the three houses vote, the clergy, the laity are very much split down the middle. It's much more of a kind of sort of like a Brexit like split. It's really fine. I mean, we're talking one or two people each way. I think the, the House of Bishops is much more swung towards um, a revisionist position, and I, I, I think, I think there was a, there's a sense of, I don't know, I think there's more of a sense of despondency maybe among um, myself and particularly people who are um, same-sex attracted, at, you know, at, at that maybe more 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 than others. Um, so that was something I just I noticed. Um, but it was it was a, it was a good. I'm glad I went. It was a good way to kind of go down and 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 see the cogs turning, so to speak. Yeah, yeah, interesting. And maybe some encouragement to see that it's not c- such a a sort of clear tide going mm. in the in the laity and mm. the clergy, and and see that it's it's still a. A debatable matter amongst them even if the bishops are very much swung towards revisionism mm. Mm. Yeah. And, you, and you talk in the article also about being encouraged by the faithfulness of fellow ordinands who you know mm. have united in in prayer and support over recent years so um <clears throat> even when the the bishops have been sort of going very much one way um can you tell me about how the, the faithfulness of fellow Christians has sort of encouraged you through this whole time? Well, it's brought, um, I've just been very encouraged by the kind of orthodox unity that's um, sprung out because of this issue. You know, we, as human beings, if we will always look for something to divide us, 
it's just the way we are as fallen human beings you know and that's no different to people in the church and when there isn't a first order issue to debate we will find second order issues to divide over and i think that's been consistently the uh, particularly the evangelical world over the last 50 years we are sort of i don't know maybe prone to to to, to relentless splitting um sometimes um and not not i don't want to dismiss the idea that people's consciences do you know they, they must follow their consciences as scripture dictates but um yes there's been a I've been very encouraged, particularly by the unity I've felt around fellow ordinands um, and just also seeing how many that there are who I, it's just helped me not feel alone. And particularly, particularly, I'm not just an ordinand. I'm also kind of, um, you know, this is this is a live issue for me uh, in terms of in terms of sexuality and and meeting a few others who for who for who that's the same, who are a little bit further ahead than me, maybe who are starting curacies which is your kind of first job after training and seeing the way in which um they're seeking to minister faithfully in um in places where it's difficult and there's been just such a, a big encouragement and a sharing of wisdom because because through all this we want to make sure that we are relating well to the people we disagree with particularly in our diocese particularly in the church um you know we are called to contend but we are called to contend in a christ-like way and having so many examples of that around me has been very encouraging and just seeing what good leadership is um that's that's been a that's been a massive encouragement and um and yeah just it just kind of warms my heart that you know despite the noise that is always at surface level um on so much of these cultural issues underneath the surface god's working away um, it reminds me of um, the start of one Samuel, you know, where you kind of you have this juxtaposition of Eli and his, you know, his naughty sons. And then every kind of paragraph afterwards is punctuated by, you know, Samuel was serving the Lord. Samuel was growing up in the Lord like God is God has got a plan and he's just he's working away beneath the surface. Um, and we don't need to be discouraged by what we see outside yeah so that that that's been a real encouragement to me yeah great so even when it feels like things are just moving in one direction to kind of spend time with others who are holding firm to truth mm. uh, encouraging one another and as you say kind of showing one another how to disagree well with mm. those that we disagree with uh, means that we don't have to descend into culture wars and acrimony in the yeah. in the way that we talk about these things yeah Absolutely. And in, in your article, there's kind of a bit of a, a sort of a gear shift at this point. You've mm. you've talked about the you know the how difficult that that was to see the bishops going in the opposite direction and so forth. It was hard to heal that. But then you call us to kind of just pause as we read and pray and look back and and see how God has been doing things. Like you're yeah. saying that God is working through all this process. And the article is called, you know, the inevitability of God's victory. And although if we just look at church politics, we might, we might and, and our culture, we might see almost an inevitable tide in one direction. Mm. The article is really not about that. The article is about, well, actually, in the end, God will have his way. God, even when things seem to be going awry, God yeah. is working through it all. And so you call us to just pause and give thanks and praise for what God is doing. Mm. so yeah, i was just wondering how you personally find that that discipline of stopping and giving thanks and noticing what god's been doing how do you find that builds you up in, in challenging mm. times 
Um, I really, I really struggle with that. Actually, there's one thing I'm not very good at. It's rejoicing. Um, I'm, I'm I think I'm quite melancholic by nature. You know, I, I, I do. Uh, I do sort of mentally reach for the kind of like worst possible case scenario, you know, I, yes, I think um, I was just, I was reflecting on the Psalms recently. I, I, I sort of, pre I preached a little bit of church on Psalm 111 and it calls us to praise um, God for his works and his word. Um, and for, it comes, Psalm 111 comes after Psalm 110, which is the fulfill, which is the big, you know, that's the big messianic Psalm that is the most quoted in the New Testament. It's where God's King arrives. David turns to this King and calls him Lord. Um, you know, this is the great fulfillment of God's promise. And Psalm 111 praises him for that. And then the rest of the Psalms is in book five, just it's just full of praise. You know, it's we get to the end of the Psalms and they just keep going on and on and on. And the whole of the sort the book ends, I think, purposefully edited that way to put unending praise. That's how the book finishes. And I think it's supposed to kind of set our minds as to understand that that's actually where we're heading. You know, we're where we're all going as followers of Christ is into eternity with unending praise on our lips. And that's the kind of crescendo of the Psalms. Um, so I think just reflecting on that as well, like that God, God is directing us towards where, where our end, you know, will be what we will be doing for eternity. But that doesn't diminish the fact that, you know, there are many, the whole of the Psalms is just, you know, struggle and lament and, anguish and frustration but at the end will come eternal unending praise so yeah i think i find i find refreshment in that i can't i can't i can't by myself get my get my uh get my head into into a heart and head posture of joy really i i, I find that very hard myself i have to let god do that to me um mm. and yeah uh fellowship and fellowship and prayer and uh and reflection uh uh, uh, invaluable for that for me mm, wonderful and those yeah as you say the many of the psalms are written in that from that sort of slightly melancholy point of view mm. um, but point us often at the end towards refreshment in god and hope mm. and um i suppose particularly for those of us who do do tend to sort of see the world in a bit of a half a glass half empty sort of yes. way the practice of thanksgiving and seeing god at work is perhaps something we particularly yeah. need to practice and mm. remind ourselves of to get perspective. Mm. So the, the reason that I um, particularly asked you in the article to you know, reflect on Isaiah 36 and 37 was we'd, uh, the two of us have been studying it, uh, the book of Isaiah last year and um, looking at the, at that whole book. But um, there's this sort of nugget of narrative uh, tucked mm -hmm. away in the middle there but often um people think oh you know isaiah is just this oh it's all about judgment and so forth and um in the middle we find there's there's this wonderful story of um of of, of hope in the sort of face of what seems to be inevitable defeat so i just wondered if you could summarize the story mm -hmm. for us and uh what the context was yeah sure um so like about ballpark 2,700 years ago, um, Jerusalem um, is basically the last piece of unconquered land 
uh, left in the promised land. Um, the kingdom by this point has been split into two. Northern kingdom is Israel, southern kingdom Judah. And the Assyrians, who are basically the superpower of the time, they've risen up on the world stage um, and they are just conquering everything. They've swept away the northern kingdom of Israel and they're now kind of bearing down on Jerusalem. Um, and we we read uh, actually outside of Isaiah where we where we find um, a very similar uh, narrative in um, two Kings chapters kind of 18 to 20. We read about um, Hezekiah. So the kingdom of Judah was actually being ruled by um, an uncommonly godly king for, for ancient Israel. Um, if we have any familiarity with two kings, it's it tends to be a, a, a litany of awful rulers. Um, but actually, there's a there's a king on the throne who um, we're told did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Um, he removed all the high places. Uh, he's restored right worship. He hasn't stopped following the Lord. And we're told that the Lord was with him. So he's he's successful in whatever he undertook. Um, but then, of course, we we also read that even even this God fearing king, Hezekiah, um, he was afraid of the Assyrians. He was afraid of Sennacherib. He was afraid of their power. And so by the time by the time um, the Assyrians have arrived outside the gates of Jerusalem and Jerusalem is this tiny little pocket of isolated um, people left of God's people. Um, Hezekiah's already tried to, you know, he's already emptied the royal treasury to give all the treasures to Sennacherib. He's he's even stripped all the temp temple gold um, from its place to give to Sennacherib to kind of say, please don't please don't attack us. Um, and it's at, at this point where Sennacherib sends his his envoy. Um, called the Rabshakeh, which is basically his spokesman um, to both to mock Hezekiah and to basically call Jerusalem to, you know, come on, give in. You're outnumbered. It's 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 over, basically. And that's kind of where we arrive in um, chapter 36 in Isaiah. Yeah. It's, and this um, this Rabshakeh, mm. he does this speech, which kind of, as you say, undermines and seeks to just point people to the worldly reality that they're vastly outnumbered that defeat is inevitable why you know why string this out why cause more pain than than is necessary yeah. and um hezekiah as you say is already king hezekiah is already compromised mm -hmm. um but that hasn't succeeded he the snackerib is just wants more and more and more mm -hmm. and so the the kind of yeah why not just just give in and um numbers are against you mm. and i suppose there's there's that kind of parallel isn't there between that and and today even within the church that kind of we might think well you know the tide's turning against us i think you use the phrase in in your article you know that we can feel on the wrong side of history sure that there's this sense of well you know is this really worth fighting anymore yeah. so I just I just wonder what what sort of encouragement you think this passage has to those of us who might look at the numbers um, voting on these matters and yeah. the things going through different church denominations. Mm. What 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 does it have to say to us? Well, I think one of the things that really jumped out at me was that in the Rabshakeh's speech, he says uh, in chapter thirty six, verse seven. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar? Which is interesting because the Rabshakeh has noticed that Hezekiah has been destroying all the high places and all the false places of worship, but he's got it wrong. 
he thinks that's where God is worshipped. And we're actually told in 2 Kings 18 that Hezekiah has actually done everything the Rabshakeh said, but the Rabshakeh doesn't recognise what false worship is and what true honouring, you know, the things of the Lord, basically. He doesn't recognise that difference. And so there's a sort of encouragement to me there that those who trust in Christ know who he is and they also know what he asks of us um, and they know him. They know the voice of their shepherd. And when thinking about history, we have to remember that it's him that is at the center point of it all. You know, when I sometimes when I, I'm maybe feeling discouraged, I I just look down in the corner of my laptop and there's a little it says, you know, today it says 3rd of February 2024. And I think 2024, OK, 2024 years since what? It's 2024 years since Jesus was born. He is at the center point of everything. You know, this attack on Jerusalem happened 700 years BC. That's 700 years before Jesus was born. The way in which we talk about history has Jesus at his center. And people who, you know, even those outside of the church who maybe are looking in, maybe our culture, maybe people inside of the church, we we have to remember and be encouraged that Jesus is at the center of it all. And we should not fear being on the wrong side of history and and, and also not fear being on the wrong side of a of a culture that tends to change its mind every generation about what it thinks is true and what it thinks is right. I think we should rejoice that, you know, at the end of all history, we're not going to be found on the wrong side of him. Mm. Um, all history revolves around him and finds its end in him. Mm. Um, and, and it's only Christians, it's only people who are following Christ that truly know what history is and where it's going. Mm. Um, because we know the one who stands at the beginning, at the middle and at its end. Mm. And yes, I think just it's a small thing, but I think just looking down, even, at, you know, whenever you see the date on something and just think 2024 years since Jesus, he is at the center of all history and that's unavoidable. And there's 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 a reminder of that everywhere you go every day. Really helpful. Yeah. And we're sort of playing the long game and not, not that it's a game, but it's that sort of that sense that, yeah, yeah this might yeah, be the right. what's what's the culture war is today, but it will probably be different in 10 years and we're we're in yeah. it for the long haul really yeah absolutely and um what's interesting about king hezekiah is you know the rav shaka has done this yeah rather persuasive public speech trying to mm -hmm. undermine king hezekiah but hezekiah doesn't kind of get drawn into a big public debate over it mm -hmm. in fact he he t instead of sort of debating it in public he turns to praying to god yeah. And I think um, in the article you you say, well, you know, my resolution this year is to pray more like King Hezekiah. Yeah. So I was just wondering, what what do you mean by that? Well, I just I noticed at the end that um, I think it's the end of chapter thirty six, verse twenty one. Hezekiah had commanded all those who were listening to the Rabshakeh, he'd commanded them not to answer back which I, I just thought was was very interesting because so often the temptation for us, particularly, you know, if we're in social media or if we're having a conversation, it's to answer back. Do you know what I mean? And so often that impulse is actually one of pride and self-vindication. And what I just loved about it is as soon as Hezekiah heard the news, it says in chapter 37, verse one, that he tore his clothes and went to the house of the Lord. 
So his first impulse was to seek God. And that's what he seems to be doing in his prayer later on. Um, he he prays to God to help him and help God's people, not on the basis of anything they've done, but just because God's name is being defamed and ridiculed. And, you know, I don't some of the prayers, some of the prayers that I pray tend to be me giving advice to God. Um, I'm very tempted to do that, whether about, you know, I'm not talking about, you know, church stuff here. I'm just talking personally, you know, I'm, I'm scared about this. I need some help. Please do it this way. Um, I'd like this to happen in my life. Here's a few ways in which that you might consider doing that for me, you know, um, and really Hezekiah just has such a great posture. He has, he demonstrates such a wonderful doctrine of God when he just basically takes the letter and says, you're God, please do something. He's not pointing out to God anything that God doesn't already know. Um, he is he is responding to God as everyone should in every prayer that they make, basically starting with God and finishing with God and say basically telling God who he is, who he knows God is. And it's a wonderful that's the kind of prayer relationship I want to have with God. And, you know, hopefully it, it, it won't come around in quite the same way as Hezekiah's did. But um Yes. <laughs> yeah, but that kind of that whole approach to prayer, making it less me-centered and more focused yeah. on God and yeah. His glory, and reminding yeah. Him of His of His plans, um, is, a, is a good way to sort of lift our focus beyond our own troubles and feelings. And isn't it the pattern of the Lord's Prayer as well? You, mm. you know, before before we get to our daily bread, it's the Lord's name the lord's kingdom come the lord's will be done and then and then we turn to ourselves mm. you know we need to I, th I feel like hezekiah just set that that ordering really well in that prayer yeah um, it's a great model isn't it it really is so in the account in isaiah that's kind of the battling that hezekiah does doesn't it he doesn't he doesn't mm. fight the armies but um God does it all for him. So do you want to just tell us what, what happens in the end? Yes. So in the end, Sennacherib doesn't actually set foot in the city. What God says to um, Hezekiah and his messengers, he says um, that he's going to defend the city and he's going to save it. Um, and he's going to respond to Hezekiah's prayer. Whereas Hezekiah says, you know, he says um, he wants God to save Jerusalem um, so that the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. And that is ultimately, that is the the right and correct posture for prayer and salvation. Ultimately, God's glory is at stake and God does act. And Sennacherib doesn't end up setting foot in the city and neither do his armies, neither do Ra the, the Rabshakeh. There's, there's not even a hint of an arrow being fired. There's no siege ramps. It basically ends with the king leading the people on their knees in prayer before the Lord is the only one who can save them. And the Lord does. Um, and we're told that he destroys 185,000 in the Assyrian camp. I mean, that's, that's not a small number. Mm. Um, and a, a little while later, we find that, you know, great King Sennacherib is, is assassinated by his own sons um, while worshiping in his, in the temple of his God, who is no God at all. Um, so there's this sort of apparently indomitable figure of, of history yeah his time comes and uh, yeah. history sort of moves on it moves on in exactly the way that god wanted and exactly the way that he intended mm. yeah 
such an encouraging story and mm. so god has done all that for them but i was just sort of reflecting you know that hezekiah and the people of god they they do have to hold their nerve don't they they mm. have to refuse to be seduced by the yeah. persuasive arguments of the other side not be intimidated hold mm. on for god's timing yeah um you know it's easy to kind of a bit like you know david and goliath or something we know how it ends yeah. But actually, if we put ourselves in the place of the people under siege uh, in that point in history in Jerusalem, it must have been terrifying. Yeah. So there's something to reflect on here. Yeah. How do we hold on to this hope that God will act when we feel like we're the ones under siege? Yes. Um, I, I suppose, you know, just off the back of what we've been saying, the posture of Hezekiah is right. Sometimes the last thing we want to go do is go to God. Um, sometimes prayer becomes difficult. Um, I know I'm much more tempted to sit and wallow and, you know, mope and think way about ways in which I can solve my problems. But I think, you know, at the risk risk of starting a hashtag, we need to be more Hezekiah. Um, <laughs> and we need to begin with God. I've also been very helped by uh, um, a devotional book written by uh, Dane Ortland called Deeper, um, which is really just helping me. His point is that we never graduate from the gospel. So the part of his book that's been helping me is just actually just meditating on the fact and the reality of our justification and what that means for us. And I've also been helped by um, Colossians, actually, Colossians chapter three, um, which which kind of ties into what Dane is talking about there as an encouragement that we never graduate from the gospel. He says, since then, you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. You know, we something has happened to us. And meditating on that reality will cause our hearts and our eyes to look upwards to where the the true power, the true Lord of all history is. And though we cannot necessarily see it ourselves, we have all these encouragements in Isaiah and also in our own lives. You know, there's there's plenty of things that we can point to and we probably fail to meditate on of, of ways in which the Lord has directed us. Thumbprints, my uh, mother-in-law calls them. It's like a thumbprint left on a glass, you know, just where you know the Lord has been. Uh, you can't see him necessarily, you, but you know he was there. Um, and I feel every Christian has that. And those are the time, those are the things you need to hold on to and cling on to and it's the things that you know jerusalem and hezekiah needed to cling on to the lord had the lord has a history of saving his people of coming through for them it's telling yourself these stories living in them making them part of your everyday life breathing them talking to the one who did this you know that's the encouragement i take from this is every day i get to spend a bit of time in the morning and a bit of time in the evening talking to the person who responded to hezekiah hmm. You know, I get to talk to to him. I get to I get to speak to him. I get to, you know, moan to him, to cry out to him. I get to do everything the Psalms tells me I can do because, you know, I'm one of his sheep. Um, and that's a wonderful thing. Um, and I'm very happy to lay it all on God, even when I'm confused or just can't see the future. Um, and I, 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 I want to encourage us and readers to not be timid in that praying i think you know the psalms gives us a great a great kind of confidence i think in the fact that we can really you know raise our voice and tell god everything that we're feeling he can take everything and the psalms are 
it's an interesting thing, isn't it? The Psalms are his way of giving us, he's given us words to say back to him. And so many of the Psalms are just, you know, a litany of anguish and frustration. It's a God who understands what living as a fallen human being in a fallen world is like. And we have permission to take all that to him. Um, even though we can't see the future, we can't see the horizon, we know we know that he can. Um, so yeah, that's that's where I take encouragement, I think. Yeah, really, really helpful, Jonathan. And as you say, even when we don't have the exact words to pray, then the Psalms, there's always a Psalm to fit the mood yes. that we can yeah. just use the words that he's given us. So that's mm. um, a good inspiration to keep mm. keep praying through and keep reading through God's word and bringing our hearts to him. Mm. Now, when in the article, when I was sort of selecting an image to go with it, yes. I was I was sort of musing on the article, the inevitability of God's victory. And it made me think of that great battle in Tolkien's book, Return of the King. Mm. And there's this sort of episode where there's armies ranged against the city of Minas Tirith. And in the film, you have, you know, this um, this view out and the armies just seem utterly endless. There's these great catapults coming forward to bring down the walls as trolls and giants come coming forward. And in that, in that sort of scene, the defeat just seems only a matter of time, really. Um, but then there's this great turning point um, where the armies of Aragorn and the Ents come and reinforce the uh, the people that are defending the city, and that's the point at which the battle turns. Yeah. The king has returned, and I'm sure Tolkien fans will be writing in to correct me on my account <laughs> <laughs> of that story. But it's a, it's a great sort of tale and a and a picture of yes, it's just needing to kind of hold firm because. Um, God will bring his inevitable victory in due course. So I was wondering if you had any sort of favourite scene from a book or a movie mm. where you have that sort of great turning point at that point when any everything seems hopeless. I suppose I've got to go for the other, the other epic trilogy for Star Wars. That's, you know, as equally part of my childhood as, uh, as Lord of the Rings was. And I've got to go for Return of the Jedi because there's like a, there's like, there's there's three of those kind of things happen at the same time because you've got the ending the ending of the movie is split between um Luke and Darth Vader on the Death Star. There's a battle going on on the 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 moon of Endor, and there's also in space the attack on the Death Star. So there's like three kind of like what's gonna happen, inevitable kind of, you know, defeats happening at the same time. Um but all there's three kind of resolutions where everything seems lost, but they all kind of come together. Um, so yeah, I think I'd have to go with that. If I had to pick a favorite one, I think it would just be Luke and Luke and Darth Vader. I think it's the, it's, it's the redemption. I think I, I liken it for obvious Christian, mm -hmm. Christian reasons, you know, Luke, uh, when, um, when, uh, Darth Vader picks up the emperor and chucks him down that, that shaft, I think that's, that's just a very clear, clear memory of just i don't know why it's just stuck in my head ever since i was a kid of like oh wow people change you know people people really can change and that's a that's a really wonderful that's a really wonderful thing so yeah i think gotta be star wars great stories great epic tales yeah so um yeah we started today talking about nintendo 64 and we've we finished talking about Tolkien and yeah. uh, and Star Wars, mm. but um, I hope that there's been some some stuff in the middle uh, talking about 
Hezekiah and God's victory in in sort of in the face of what seemed to be inevitable defeat. But we're just holding on to that hope that God's victory will come and we need to stand firm and in the process be holding on to the hope and be you know praying to him and just trusting that his in his timing that his will will be done so thanks so much jonathan for um talking with me today that's been really inspiring talking about through this story from mm. isaiah and uh, reflecting on your experience and thank you so much for all you shared and for your time today Thank you very much for having me. It's been my absolute pleasure. Thanks to Jonathan for some great insights on staying resilient and for his tips for putting our trust in God who's in charge even in difficult times. On our website at truefreedomtrust.co.uk you can find further testimonies, articles and reviews and you can sign up to receive our Ascend magazine. So you've been listening to the Ascend Higher podcast. Thanks for listening and bye for now.